Will you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 22? And as you turn there, let me remind you where we're at, where we've been, and kind of where we are in this final Passion Week of Christ so that we remember that framework. Uh, it is a Sunday when Jesus rides into town to the cheers and the praises of tens of thousands and messianic uh, expectations, kingdom expectations, are at an all-time high at that point in Jerusalem. The following day, Jesus uh, comes back into the city, and on the way into the city, he sees a fig tree with leaves on it but no fruit. And he curses that fig tree because it's a fruitless, vain display. And then immediately following that, he comes into his temple and he cleanses it. He drives out those that are buying and selling and changing money because what had taken place there was commerce instead of worship. It was profit over repentance. It had gutted the temple of everything that it was supposed to be, what it was supposed to mean, what it was supposed to provide for the people. And so he cleanses that. He rejects Israel's fruitless worship. And then for that day and the next, he occupies his temple. He heals. He teaches. He restores a picture of what right worship in the place that God had chosen ought to look like. And in that context of Jesus teaching and healing, now the religious leaders have approached him and they've challenged him, particularly with regard to his authority. And of course, Jesus doesn't answer that question. He turns that and he says, if you want to talk about authority, first, you have to answer this question of mine. Where did John get his authority? And because they can't answer, he refuses to answer them. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He tells a series of three parables, and that's where we started last week. We looked at the first two of those three parables, and that first parable really invites us to look at what obedience is looks like. What does it mean to be obedient? That parable of the two sons, one who originally refused to do what the father asked, but then went out and did it, and one who initially agreed, but then never followed through. What does obedience look like? And in the context of that, Jesus applies it directly to them, and he says something shocking. He says that tax collectors and prostitutes are coming into the kingdom ahead of you. The, the very worst that you can think of are like that first son, who although they were wicked and evil, when confronted with their sin, they had a change of mind, a change of heart, and they responded in obedience. But you, you heard John, and you rejected him, not once, but continually, even after you saw what his ministry was producing, changed lives, you refused to even consider that it might be from God. And you're glad to be done with him. And then he moves into that second parable about the wicked tenants. And he gives clear allusions back to Isaiah chapter 5, using some of the same language, the vineyard, the landowner who did everything he could for this vineyard, although he adds the element of renting it out to tenants. People who were supposed to give their portion of the profit in the proper season, and although messengers were sent to them, they rejected them, they mistreated them, and finally they killed the messengers. And not only did they kill the messengers, but they killed the son. And as he asks them what ought to happen, they say he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. That landowner will do what is right and just. And Jesus says, that's absolutely what's going to happen, but it's going to come on you. And not only on you, but that's where we started to broaden these warnings, because it's not simply the religious leaders, it's anyone who rejects the cornerstone. Whether you fall on him or whether he falls on you, the result is that you're shattered. Because Christ is the cornerstone, and this is God's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes, all those things that pull us back to Psalm 118. And as we come into the third parable today, it's going to start with common language. This is a parable of the kingdom. This is going to tell us what the kingdom is like, but it's going to broaden that warning even further. Now we're not looking at only those who would violently reject the king, now once again, but we're highlighting the fact that rejection involves anyone who does not respond in the way that the king calls them to. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read the opening verses to kind of set the stage for where we'll be today. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before another story, another parable, uh, we're so thankful that you condescend and help us to understand these things, that, that you would make yourself known to fallen and finite men and women really is a remarkable thing. 
And yet at the same time, simply because we read does not mean that we have eyes to see or ears to hear. And so we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. That you would remove our blindness, that you would pierce our deafness, and that you would help us to see clearly who you are, what it means to come to you and your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would, through the power of your spirit, arrange our lives so that pursuing the kingdom is our ultimate priority. Shake us out of our apathy and replace it with a consistent desire to come into your presence. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Invitations are a big deal in our lives, and they have been since the time we were little kids. When you're in kindergarten, first and second grade, if you're the only kid in the class that doesn't get an invitation to the birthday party, it's a hurtful thing. You are clearly on the outside. If you're in high school, the right invitation can make or break your social life. Right now, if you're an adult, you can imagine what an honor it would be uh, to be invited to the house of a prominent politician. Maybe. Maybe that's not a great example where we're at and the time that we're at, uh, but a high-powered CEO, a wealthy, prominent individual inviting you into their space, inviting you to have personal contact with them uh, would be a surprising thing to most of us. Our first question, if we got that kind of an invitation, would very likely be, why me? Uh, About a year ago, I got an email from a very well-known Christian publishing company, and they were inviting me to review and write a recommendation for a book. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And then I thought, well, why? That doesn't make sense at all. So, of course, I sent an email back, and sure enough, it was meant to go to another Matt Round, who was actually prominent and well-known in the field. He's a professor somewhere. And so, you know, on the phone, they'll laugh it off. (laughs) Of course, it's understandable. They sent me a book to make up for it. It still stung more than a little bit, if I'm being honest. But uh, that invitation didn't make sense. It it didn't line up with my experience, my expertise. It didn't line up with the place. Because to have me endorsing your book, let's be honest, it's not going to drive sales. Imagine, for a moment, an invitation greater than anything you can imagine on a human scale. An invitation not to come into the presence of a king, but an invitation to come into the presence of the king of kings, an invitation to be a part of his kingdom. How would you respond? To hear the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and come into it, how would you respond? Today we're going to see a parable that is all about the kingdom and the invitation to come. And we're going to see rejection, we're going to see reception, and then we're going to see a rejection again at the end. But let's open this up and begin by looking at the people rejecting the king. As we open verse 22, it starts off with a request. Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So much like in Matthew 13, we're back not only in parables, but in kingdom parables. This parable is meant to demonstrate or display something about the kingdom that we might not naturally kind of come to the conclusion of. The kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13 was compared to a number of different things. A large net, a treasure in a field, a mustard seed, seed that goes out on various soils. So we're used to this. Matthew has prepared us. Jesus has prepared his disciples to hear this kind of truth. And this time it's set in the context of a wedding feast. And when we say that it's a wedding feast, we're familiar with weddings and that we understand the preparation. Some of us spend upwards of a year preparing for our wedding. And still, I think in our minds, uh, our picture of a wedding feast would fall far short of what this is. Because when we have a wedding feast, we have the ceremony, and then we have dinner, and then we have terrible dancing, and then everybody goes home, and that's not what this is. Culturally, a wedding feast would very likely, it would be the highlight of that family's entire existence. That the wedding feast was the day. And more than that, it wasn't the day, it was the days. These could last upwards of a week, and it wasn't just a meal, it was provision after provision. The host of the wedding would give everything that he could to his guests. And so when we come here and we read that a king is throwing a wedding feast for his son, this is not meant to highlight necessarily the identity of the son, although we can get there. The bride is not even mentioned in the parable. What this is supposed to set in our mind is this is the most extravagant, amazing, unimaginably great event that you can think of. This would be the pinnacle of what they could imagine being invited to. 
A wedding feast was spectacular enough, but the wedding feast of a king for his son would bring resources that you couldn't even imagine. This isn't a party, this is the party. It's not an event, this is the event. This would be the highlight of your entire life to be invited to the wedding banquet of a king. And a request has gone out. The king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. This takes time to prepare. And long ago, the invitation to the feast had gone out. At the proper time, the king is going to send for you, and you will come to the feast of his son. The people know they would anticipate it. This, again, would be something that you would order your entire lives around. And now the request goes out to those that already knew that it was coming, to those who would have been anticipating this day. The invitation has gone out. The request has been made. Come, it is time to celebrate. But the response to this invitation is shocking. Because where we would expect and anticipate enthusiasm and excitement and a people busy making themselves ready for this, instead we see rejection. As he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. This isn't a surprise. This isn't a last-minute invitation that gets sent out over Facebook where if you can make it, sorry about the late notice. This isn't an oversight on the part of the king. This isn't a people who should have been unprepared. This is something that should have been the priority in their life and they don't come. And that would be shocking. It should be shocking for a couple of reasons. First of all, why would you turn down this kind of invitation? Who would turn down the opportunity to go to the greatest thing that you can imagine? You all have your own greatest thing that you can imagine, whether it's 50-yard line tickets to the Super Bowl or tickets to a particular concert. Or it's whatever the greatest thing is, this was it. Who would turn down the opportunity to be a part of that? It simply doesn't make sense. And beyond that, when you put this in the context of a king inviting you into his presence, who would turn down the invitation of a king? In our cultural language, this is an offer that you can't refuse. When the king invites you to be in his presence, it is not only an honor, it's an expectation. Because when the king calls, his subjects come. But they don't. And if that were the end of the interaction, it would be strange enough to hear but it continues, look at verse 4. Again, he sent other servants. Now that should sound familiar to us because this is coming right in the immediate context of our other parables. And when the tenants refused last week to give the produce in its due season to the landowner, what did he do? He sent servants, and then when they were rejected, he sent other servants. So this is meant to kind of shadow that. But he sends servants a second time saying, tell those who are invited... I, I know you sent the message out. I know you told them to come. But now I'm going to give you the specific words. Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves, they've all been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Maybe you didn't hear. Maybe you misunderstood. This isn't the time of preparation. The preparation is done. Now is the time for action. Now is the time to come. There's an urgency. The feast is at hand. And the time to come is now. So by the time we read their second response, we have to understand that there's not the problem of misunderstanding or ignorance here. They cannot claim that they don't know. They cannot claim that they don't understand. This has been made clear. Now it's been made doubly clear twice. But what happens? Verse 5, but they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his farm and another to his business. And we have the first group of people that rejects the king. And please see this. The first ones to reject the king do not overtly hate the king. These people in this verse would not say that they have any special hatred or animosity toward the king's son. They're not declining the invitation because they would call themselves enemies of the king. They simply can't be bothered. They simply see the invitation and they go off. Coming into the presence of a king, that sounds really neat. You know, I'd love to be there but it's harvest time and I've got this farm. It's the season for trading and I have this business. Farms are important. Businesses are important. They feed families. But when you hold the ordinary elements of this life 
the mundane, day-by-day, week-by-week existence up against the opportunity to be in the presence of a king. It ought to fall so far short that you can't even imagine trading one for the other. And yet they do. They give up the splendor of a royal banquet for the mundane, ordinary things of life. In verse 6, And the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. There are those whose rejection is hostile and violent. They do despise the king. They do despise his son. And when the wedding invitation comes, they reject it. And when the wedding invitation continues to come, they reject it violently and they kill the messenger. Imagine that. The postman brings a wedding invitation to your door. Looks like you got a wedding invitation here. What a great thing. And you're so enraged by this postcard that you got that invited you to this person's wedding that you kill the postman. Yeah, it's more shocking than that. Because these are the messengers of the king. This is shameful. This is violent. This is no regard for the king's generosity that would invite them in the first place. This is no regard for the place of the king's son. This is no regard for the king's authority itself. And murder has a consequence. So the king is going to respond, and the response is, well, fairly predictable. The king was angry. And rightfully so. The king was angry and he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The king had a right to be angry at the first refusal. Again, do we realize that? The first time he said, come, he had a right to be angry, but he was patient and he sent out servants again to call again and when they were were rejected and violently rejected, now the king will respond. This isn't a tantrum. This isn't violence for violence sake. This is the just response to what's happened. This is rejection. This is murder. This is mutiny against the king. And to reject the king brings this picture of utter destruction. What's, what's the point of all of that? <laughs> Why does that matter? Well, context really makes this fairly plain because Jesus said... Here, then, a parable about what? This is a parable about the kingdom. And if this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven, then God is clearly the king. And to come to his great wedding feast is this invitation to come into the kingdom. But who received an invitation to come to the king, to come into the very presence of God? Well, was it not Israel? time and time again, from from Abraham's day, called out to be his treasured possession, his own particular people, called out of Egypt, given the feasts and the festivals and the law, given the very presence of God, and even though they failed, given the prophets over and over. Time after time, generation after generation, God's messengers who would call the people back Repent and return, and if only you will obey, if only you will surrender your hard, stubborn hearts, you will come into the presence and the blessing of the king in a way that you can't even imagine. And they refused, and they refused, and they refused, and they beat and mistreated and killed the prophets. And now John the Baptist has come, and what's his message? Repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is coming and this is now and Christ has come and the kingdom of heaven is at hand and now there's all the urgency of the messianic expectation and still they cannot be bothered. They refused. And this is where the tension really begins to build in this Passion Week because it is very, very easy to see Jesus at odds with the religious leaders. It is very, very easy to see Jesus' animosity in this clash with this small group of religious elites. But they are not the only ones who are in the process of rejecting the Messiah. Because how will the vast majority of Israel respond to her king? Apathy. You're going to make bread and fish out of nothing? We'll show up for that. You're going to condemn these religious leaders who place burdens on us? We'll affirm that. You want me to leave field and family to follow you? 
to forego burying my father, to follow you, to give up all that I have and give it to the poor to come after you. I'm okay. By and large, the response of the people of Israel to her promised Messiah was an apathetic sigh. And to reject the king through hatred or apathy brings judgment. Well, that's not the only response in this parable. The second portion of this parable actually sees a very different response. We've seen the rejection of the king, but now we're going to see those who receive the king's invitation. Because the end of the story isn't the king's anger. Look at what he says in verse 8. Then he, that is the king, said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. And now we come around to question of who is worthy. Who, who would be worthy to receive an invitation of the king? See, if this ever happened to us, and those who were invited to the wedding completely rejected it, uh, most of us would just consider the event canceled, but not this king. The preparations have been made. The son is getting married, and he is worthy of a celebration, and the king is going to make sure that this happens. The problem was not with the king. The problem was not with the invitation. The problem was not with the preparation. The problem was that those who were invited were not worthy of the invitation that they had been given. Well, what made them worthy or not worthy? Were they not important enough? Were they not educated enough? No, that has nothing to do with it. They were farmers, they were businessmen, they were people. They were those who, to whom the king had extended an invitation. But what did determine whether they were worthy? The only thing that determines it is their response to the invitation. See, the people who are hearing this parable would assume that invitations only went out to the worthy. Because when a king holds a feast, he only sends invitations out to the ones who deserve to be there. Caesar did not make a habit of inviting the dregs of Rome to come to the palace to feast. They were not worthy of being there. And so we would assume naturally on our own that if a king is going to invite people into his presence, he invites those who are worthy of that great honor. But here, that worthiness isn't tied to what they are, who they do, what they do, who they know. It's tied to their response to the invitation. See, the problem was that they thought so little of the king that they wouldn't just rush into his presence. They thought so little of the son that they would reject this kind of invitation. They thought so little of the authority of the king that they would dare even to kill his messengers. Well, if they're unworthy, then who is worthy? If those that were initially invited weren't worthy, who is called? Who is called into this? Look what the king does in verse 9. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. That invitation that went out to the first group and was rejected now goes out far and wide, to the wide places and the crossings in the road. In other words, the invitation goes out to where the people would be. It goes out to the most populated places and it goes out to everyone. You, here, in the sound of my voice, whoever you are, come to the wedding of the king's son. And once again, we read that, and we nod our head, and we pretend that that makes sense to us. That doesn't make sense. That is not supposed to make sense. The anger of the king when he was rejected, that makes sense. The judgment that the king gives to those who refused him and rejected and beat and killed his servants, that makes sense. The king then going out and inviting everybody makes no sense. If the president of the United States came here into Camarillo and flew into the Camarillo airport and was going to hold a private exclusive fundraising dinner in one of those hangars and the banquet was all prepared, the podium is there ready for him to preach and no one shows up because he and Gavin are at odds or whatever the case may be, but no one's going to show up, we would not expect the president to then tell all of his aides, all right, uh, the outlets are just down the street. Go to the outlets, bring buses, and whoever you can get on the bus, bring them back here. We're going to have the party anyway. That does not make sense. That is what has happened. They rejected, so instead we are just going to invite everyone. 
And what happens? Those servants went out into the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, people who would have never imagined or even considered receiving an invitation like this, receive the invitation, and they come. To those who would have never even expected to hear from the king are now called into the king's presence, and they go. Because that's what you would do with that kind of invitation. If you had the choice between plowing the field and celebrating in the palace, would you not choose the palace? Of course you would. It makes sense. Would you not abandon everything that you had over here in your regular, ordinary, mundane life that will be the same tomorrow and the next day and the day after and go into this one extraordinary, unimaginably beautiful event that somehow you had access to? We would run for that. And the wedding hall is filled with guests, and it's so interesting that those who come are described as both good and bad. When kings send out invitations to come into their presence, they don't go to the bad guys. You don't want pickpockets wandering around the palace. You don't want dissenters coming in to the presence of the king. And yet those who come are good and bad. Those who come are respectable and a little bit shady. And what's shocking is the bad aren't only invited. The bad are the ones that actually do respond. And here again, context is so helpful to us. Because what did Jesus say in that parable with the two sons? The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to come into the kingdom before you. Not just bad, the worst that you can think of are going to respond. And what do we see? Who responds to the invitation of Christ? Tax collectors and prostitutes. Lepers blind, lame, the others and the outcasts, those who would never conceive of being thought of in the presence of God, respond to the invitation. And building all the way through Matthew's gospel and really coming to a climax at the end in Matthew 28 is the idea to go where? Into all the nations. The shocking thing, it's not only tax collectors, it's not only prostitutes, Gentiles. Of all people, God is going to call Gentiles into his kingdom. This is a picture of the right response to the gospel call. A call that doesn't go out to the worthy, to the clean, to the educated, to the upstanding. And a call that simply goes out. Where worthiness isn't determined by being good or bad, by being maybe a little bit more presentable, maybe by your history being a little bit more clean from the world's standards than mine, where it's all about your response to that call. Because this king did not come to call the rich and the powerful and the elite. And also, this king did not come to only call the outcast and the other. This king came to call and to save sinners. And in the presence of the king... Everyone will have one thing in common. They accepted an invitation that they had no right to even receive. And if the story ended there, then it would be a beautiful picture of the gospel, and it is. And it would be an encouraging thing, and, and it is. It definitely should be, but there's another turn that we have to make here. There's kind of one more veer in the road. Well, we've seen what it looks like to reject the king's invitation. We've seen what it looks like now to receive the king's invitation, but now at the very end of this parable, we come to this difficult little section where the king exercises a rejection of his own. And we come to verse 11, and we're faced with a problem. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man with no wedding garment. In the midst of this party and the celebration, and the joy and the noise and the music and the eating and the drinking, the king comes out to, to walk among his guests, and his eye is drawn to a particular man who has no wedding garment. One of these things is not like the others. Something in this group does not belong. When I was at the Air Force Academy, every morning, the basics, the new cadets, the freshmen, we all had to wear the same thing. And that wasn't just the uniform in general. It went right down to the color of the undershirt. And if you were wearing brown and everybody else was wearing black, the eyes of the training officer went right to you, and it was not a good morning. And this man shows up, 
at the wedding feast, and he is noticeably different than everyone else there. Now, we're not, we're not told where they got the wedding garments. We're not told if they were handing them out at the door. If the king provided them, we're not told if they had to go home and change and just put on the best that they had. And uh, there's all kinds of debates as to whether this guy simply didn't prepare or whether he took something off that the king was given to him. Ultimately, that's not the point. The point is that he was not prepared as he should be. The reality is that he has come into the presence of the king dressed however he wants. This is not a reflection of whether he was the worst of the bad that somehow snuck in the door. It's not a reflection of whether he somehow didn't deserve the invitation because none of them did. The reality is that everyone else who came into the wedding feast was properly dressed and this man was not. At the heart of this is the idea that if this man was going to come into the king's presence, he was going to do it on his own terms. An invitation to be in the presence of the king sounds great. Party? Free food? Shelter for the night? Great music? Sign me up. I'm there. I will be there. But I'm going to go comfy. And the king approaches him. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man's answer, or really his lack of answer, is telling. He was speechless. And that's the point. He can't say that there was a reason or an excuse. That's why it doesn't matter whether they were given out or whether you were expected to go home and change into the best you have. That's not the point. The point is that every provision was made for him to be there and dressed appropriately, and he simply chose not to. There is no excuse. There's nothing that he can say. There is no reason for him to be there in the state that he's in. And the king says, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not the place where you get to set the standards. You come into the presence of the king on the king's terms. And to come your own way is to be cast out. Uh, this is serious judgment. Uh, the picture here is of a darkness uh, so oppressive that it brings this great mourning, this weeping, this gnashing of teeth. This is a terrible, sobering picture. But what's the point? Because if this is about clothes, then this seems like a petty king that is overreacting. If this is about what we physically wear, whether that be into church or any other context, then we terribly abuse this parable. What's the point? The point is that you don't come to the king on your own terms. that great invitation to come to the wedding banquet of the Son, that invitation to come into the presence of the King and His kingdom, that presence, that kingdom invitation that is greater than anything you can imagine or deserve demands a response. And all kinds of people will come, but all of those people will come under the standard of the King. But we said, but this guy responded. I mean, this guy at least showed up. He doesn't seem to be apathetic. He certainly didn't beat and kill the messengers. This guy bothered to show up. Isn't that enough? The answer is clearly no. Maybe this brings us back to another kingdom parable from Matthew 13. We, we read about the parable of the soils. And sometimes the seed fell on hard ground and it was carried away immediately. Sometimes it falls on shallow soil and there, there's an immediate springing up, but then it's scorched and it dies. Sometimes it falls among thorny places and it grows up, but then it's choked out. Sometimes it falls on good places and there's lasting growth and uh, a fruitful crop. And we remember that all of those were conditions of the human heart. And that sometimes there appears to be an immediate response to the kingdom. Sometimes there appears to be a positive initial reception. And yet, when tested, we find that there's no lasting heart change. This man would represent those who say the kingdom sounds good. I mean, heaven sure sounds better than hell. And if all I got to do is show up on a couple of Sundays, then it seems like a worthy trade-off to me. 
But if I'm going to go to church, if I'm going to come into this Christianity thing, if I'm going to follow this Jesus, I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to hold on to enough of me so that I don't lose myself in the process. What a tragedy when we realize that to come to this king means surrendering our entire identity to him. That an old man in its entirety is put to death and passed away, and we are made new creations, entirely new things in Christ. And to reject that has terrible consequences. This is not God's frustration toward an immature believer. This is not God being slightly ticked off that someone is slow to change. This is God identifying an enemy who would claim to be a part of those who have responded. And the words of judgment that we see here, we also read in Matthew 8 and Matthew 13, and we're going to see them again in Matthew 24 and in Matthew 25. This is not exile. This is not a slap on the wrist. This is talking about eternal separation and judgment. And verse 14 closes with this unexpected little phrase, a proverb, a short, truthful statement that is a little bit difficult. For many are called, but few are chosen. Why in the world is that there? Because in a lot of ways it brings balance, but it also introduces attention to this that we might not have had before. Well, what does it mean to say that many are called? Your translation might even say invited, and that fits. Many are invited. Many are called to come. But what does the gospel invitation look like? It is not a selective seating. It is not a glowing light over someone's head that says that one ought to be shared with, the opportunity to come into the kingdom. No, it's this call that goes out far and wide. It doesn't go to the religious elite. It doesn't go to the economically empowered. It doesn't only go to the gutters. It goes to the masses. We are like the servants in some ways, and how do we identify our mission here at this church? We're calling all people, right? To receive, demonstrate, and declare God's transforming grace through Jesus Christ. We go out and indiscriminately spread the gospel of salvation. We go out and without a thought to who they are or who we're talking to, we present the hope of Christ and the wonder, the unthinkable, unimaginable glory of the opportunity to be restored to fellowship with God and to have this eternal inheritance with him and in him. We go out and we give the invitation to a wedding feast that is beyond your wildest dreams. Many are called, and yet what's the reality? Comparatively few respond to that invitation. Some people are apathetic to it. Some people violently reject it, but the idea is that few come. And from our perspective, if we simply read this parable, then it might seem like the king was caught off guard by all of this. Because how could those invited not come? It might seem like a last-minute pivot in history that he would have to go out and invite those from the highways and the byways just to make sure the wedding feast was filled. It might seem like a surprising thing that the king would go and find this one who doesn't belong. Well, this last phrase brings us back into that wonderful, marvelous tension that we too often try to resolve, and that is that behind all of this stands God's sovereignty. We find consistent language, not only here, but all the way through the New Testament, Gospels, Epistles, and in Revelation, all the way through, that those who come are those who are called and chosen. And we battle that tension. And yet the great reality is that there is a call that goes out to come to the kingdom, and that call goes out universally to every man, woman, and child that the church comes across, or at least it ought to. And that either responding to or rejecting that call has eternal consequence and implications. And at the very same time, on the other side of this, from God's perspective, we see his divine sovereignty that knows all things, ordains all things, and orders all things for his glory. We don't like tension. Jesus apparently doesn't have a problem with it. <laughs> and we see that those who come 
are those who are always his. This is an interesting look at a king in a kingdom. Because it's a king like no other that calls men and women into a kingdom like no other. What kind of king keeps sending messengers to those who reject him instead of armies? What kind of king invites common, ordinary, good and the bad to share in his wealth? And you and I have been called to share in the marvelous wedding feast of the Son. To experience a joy, a provision, and a kingdom that we could not earn and could never even imagine. What an unthinkable mercy that the king would call people like you and me. The good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, but at heart sinners who are not worthy of invitation, not only to come into his presence, but to be called sons and daughters. Three things for us to think about. And the first and the most pointed application that I think I can make today is this, and that is that kingdom apathy has eternal consequences. I do not think for a moment that anyone sitting here is violently hateful of the idea of Jesus Christ. I don't think that anybody who winds up watching this in any context violently rejects Christianity to the point where they are looking for servants of Christ to persecute. But I am deeply concerned that a number of us here, listening or watching, find ourselves drowning in our own spiritual apathy. The American church, to say nothing of this church or any other local church, is swallowed up in our own apathy. What are we called to? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We know it. We've read it. We can quote it. And it sounds good. Seek first, above everything else, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. No problem. Sounds good. Heaven sounds good. Morality sounds good. Church sounds good. Until something else comes along. And I typed and erased a bunch of stuff here <laughs> because I, I don't ever want anyone to think that I was thinking of you when I write through tough applications because if we're being honest, I'm always writing to me and me first. But I have to poke a little bit. If for no other reason, then sometimes we need that to prod our thinking and maybe provoke some honest reflection. And so here's the question. Is the kingdom actually worth it to you? Is it actually worth it to me? Or are we a collection of people who would verbally agree that we are called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then who practically are so apathetic with our faith that we would pursue anything else first? And there's a thousand different ways that we apply that. I know I'm called to be a husband and a father that pursues Christ above all and then who loves my wife the way that Christ loved the church, and then who parents my children as God has shepherded me. Until it's hard, or until I'm tired, or until setting standards means my kids don't like me as much as they used to. We know that gathering together with the saints of God ought to be a wonderful, beautiful foretaste of what heaven is going to be. That God has called us to come together to sing, to worship, to demonstrate, and to use our gifts for the building up of the body and the glory of the head of the body that is Christ. And that sounds good until the game is on or until the soccer season schedule comes out or until the couch is just more comfortable than the pews. And this has nothing to do with COVID. 
This has nothing to do with being a perfect parent, a perfect pastor, a perfect anything. God knows that I have failed repeatedly in all of those this week. The question is simply this. Why does the kingdom not captivate us the way that it should? Why is it that what the king of all eternity calls me to and promises me somehow seems less beautiful, less wonderful, less desirable than a thousand other normal, mundane, ordinary, temporary, perishing things that run all through this life. Why is it that this gospel that we say is the greatest news of all times can't seem to make its way out of our mouth when it might make a conversation awkward? Why is it that the American church is ready to fight about anything and everything on Facebook but refuses to submit to the demands of her Savior? My worry for this church and for the church is not that Christ returns and says, why did you hate me so? It'll simply be, why didn't I matter? How many times a week do I need to repent of that same attitude in my own life? God, save us from being an apathetic church. Second thing, it's easier to digest. There are only unworthy invitees. Because maybe you hear that and you look at the pattern of your life and you say, you're right, I don't belong. If you knew what I have struggled with in the past, if you knew, or God forbid, the church knew what I continue to struggle with, then I would receive every one of those judgmental glances that the church is famous for, and rightly so. I cannot possibly be invited to come into this kingdom. How far we've forgotten that God only invites the unworthy. That salvation is only extended to sinners. And that good or bad, presentable or not presentable, from the world's perspective or even from our perspective, the worthiness is not wrapped up in who you are, what you've done, or what you haven't done. The worthiness is only and wholly wrapped up in the response to the invitation that God extends. Will you come into the banquet of this king? And so that invitation goes out today in your unworthiness, not in spite of it, but through it, that Christ redeems the unredeemable that he came to seek and save that which was lost. That the physician comes for the sick, not the well. And so if we are apathetic in our faith, God drive us to our knees in repentance. And if you for some reason think that you are unqualified for this kingdom, Lord knows you are absolutely right. And yet he bids you come. Not because you're good enough, but because he is. Not in your own righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And finally, we come to the king on the king's terms. So many of us, for some reason, think that to come and sit is enough. To give is enough. To be here present physically is enough. To serve in Sunday school is enough. To preach a sermon is enough. Well, God's not fooled. We come to the king on his terms. A whole life surrendered over to him. I pray that we're a people that aren't driven by outward external obedience content with good enough but are so captivated with the wonder of the kingdom and the inheritance and the king who is at the center of all of that that we not only passionately pursue it but we are willing to lay down anything to come to him in the way that he's called us to let's pray Lord parables are easy when they're pointed at someone else quite another thing when they shine a light in our own darkness. God, forgive us of our apathy. Forgive us for somehow thinking that 
a quiet nodding of our head without any heart change is the same as obedience. Lord, remind us that in repentance there is great joy. That in redemption there is new life in Christ. And that even in our failure, for some reason, you have called us for your glory to something that is eternally good for us. Lord, will you show our students, our children, that obedience is worth it. That a life surrendered to the kingdom is worth it. Will you remind our parents that it's worth it? The employers, the employees, the friends, the neighbors. God, will you remind us that the kingdom is worth it? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And on the first Sunday of the month, we have the opportunity to share communion together, to celebrate, again, in, in a preview way, the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's, that's what we do on days like this. this. It's a preview of coming attractions that ought to inspire and incite our heart to repentance and confession and prayer and restoration and all of those wonderful things uh, that we long for to be made whole and complete. And so before we come together and take the bread and before we read those familiar passages that we will, I want to invite you just to take a moment in the quietness of your hearts and if there is confession needed, uh, confess, repent. If there's apathy, recognize it and turn from it. If there's rebellion, recognize it or turn from it. If you've never considered this Christ, then now, right now, repent. Come to the King on His terms. So I'll give you just a moment. We'll pray and then we'll come back and we'll take the bread together in just a minute. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray. Lord, you prepared a body, a sacrifice for our sins. You made a way for us to be called into the presence of the King and to enjoy fellowship with the Son himself. Lord, what an unthinkable privilege extended to people like us. Lord, thank you for the invitation to come into your presence. Amen. <laughs>